Welcome to Hand Therapy Heroes, the premier podcast on hand and upper extremity rehabilitation. As a worldwide educator and developer of best-in-class hand therapy content, Susan Weiss, occupational therapist and certified hand therapist, brings you an array of hand therapy specialists, hand care solutions, and more. Welcome to Hand Therapy Heroes. I'm delighted to introduce our hero today, Dr. Don Lalonde. Dr. Lalonde is a professor in the Division of Plastic and Reconstructive Surgery at St. John's in Canada. He is an absolutely amazing hand surgeon who has shared his knowledge with thousands of therapists and surgeons across the globe for the past 35 years. He has received more honors than I can count on my fingers, toes, and the fingers and toes of all four of my children. He has provided visiting professorships to 58 institutions, including the Kleiner Institute, where he has been kind enough to duck out for a little bit to speak with us today. He has authored over 150 referenced journal articles a wide array of book chapters, and is the editor of the Wide Awake Hand Surgery book. Are you ready for this? Dr. Lalonde has presented a mere 636 international and national presentations. So if you have managed not to hear him speak at any of the meetings that you've been to, you are in for a treat today. So without further delay, Let's begin our discussion. So would you please share with everybody how you began your career in the niche of hand and upper extremity surgery? Sure. I didn't follow the usual path. The usual path is that you do a residency and then you do a hand surgery fellowship. I didn't really have that privilege. I finished my plastic surgery residency at McGill in Montreal in 1984. And part of the way Canada works is most of the hand surgery is done by plastic surgeons. And so by default, as soon as you start practicing, probably 50% of your practice is hand surgery, which is what I did. And so I started practicing as a hand surgeon in St. John, New Brunswick in Canada without a hand fellowship. And I've been doing it ever since as part of my practice. Awesome. We are so excited to talk a little bit about flexor tendon care and how it has changed since you began practicing as a hand surgeon. Can you go ahead and share with us some changes that you've seen, including as simple as number of strands to epitinon to practice general practice techniques? This is really exciting information for us. Be happy to do that. So flexor tendons have uh, flexor tendon management has changed a lot. When I started being a hand surgeon 35 years ago, my results, frankly, were not very good. I had a lot of rupture. I had a lot of tenolysis. And uh, I'm really pleased to have had the privilege of traveling through the world and meeting and speaking with really bright people like Peter Amadio and Jinbo Tang and Suman Sai and all kinds of really tendon surgeons, and I've learned a lot of things. <clears throat> and I think that um, of the today, we should and 
could can get good results every time. Susan, if you came in with a nice clean cut with a knife uh, in zone two, I can get a good result because I know you're going to be a good patient. You're going to follow the instructions. And our success rate should be better than 95%, the same as a modern free flap. And we should almost never have rupture and we should almost never have tingolysis in uh, the year 2019 if people follow uh, some of the simple rules uh, that I'd be happy to discuss. I would love to hear about those simple rules. The simple rules are at least a four strand, very solid repair with one centimeter bites and a bulky repair, not a grandma kiss repair, not where the uh, tendon ends are just touching, but a, a really solid repair. And if people want to understand more about that, uh, they should look at a paper by Dr. Jin Bo Tang that was published in Hand Clinics in 2017, 300 flexor tendon repairs by young surgeons in three different hospitals and only one rupture and almost no tenolysis by following the simple rules that I'm going to talk about. And there's a nice drawing in there about a bulky repair. So a really, really solid repair. So that's important. And probably the single greatest change is uh, judicious venting of pulleys. We used to think that you cannot vent the A2 and the A4 pulleys, and that led to 50 years of unnecessary rupture and unnecessary tenolysis mm -hmm. in zone two flexor tendon repairs. Can I just jump in real quick? When you said venting of the pulleys, can you give our listeners a little bit more of a description of what that actually means, please? Yeah, it means cutting them. Surgeons have this terrible aversion to the idea that you're actually going to cut a pulley. It's, it's almost like sacrilegious to <laughs> cut the A2 or the A4 pulley. But um, as I just told the Kleinart fellows here in Louisville this morning, that's done. You have to cut those pulleys at least enough until the patient can fully flex and fully extend the fingers. You see, we used to think you had to save those pulleys in order to avoid clinically significant bowstringing. But all right. of those studies were done in cadavers, and cadavers have no blood, no lymph, no water. They're dehydrated. And so what looks like bowstringing in a cadaver does not look like bowstringing in a live human being. Mm -hmm. And wide-awake hand surgery has proven to us that there's no clinically significant bowstringing when you cut the A2 or the A4. So the new rule is, and this is in Jinbo Tang's paper that I already mentioned, is that you vent up to one and a half to two centimeters total of pulley venting. So what that means, and one and a half is for short fat fingers like mine, <laughs> or two centimeters would be in long skinny fingers, perhaps like yours. And if you never vent more than one and a half to two centimeters of pulley. You're not going to get clinically significant bowstringing because if you vent A2 completely, you may and probably will still have all of A1 and mm -hmm. A3. If you vent A4, you're still going to have A2 and A5. Even if you vent A3 and A4, you can do that and you won't get clinically significant bowstringing. And I have seen this dozens of times with wide awake hand surgery. And it's part of the reason that um, we're getting good results today. Because now you can have a good bulky repair 
that's going to easily glide enough for full range of motion of flexion and extension because it's not impeded by the damned A2 and A4 pulleys. And I say that with uh, disrespect. They are damned A2 and A4. We've been giving them uh, almost holy status for way too long. And so one of the keys here is to do this in the awake patient. Now, Jinbo Tang's repairs were not all in awake patients, although he certainly, he and his colleagues in China are mostly doing wide awake repair today. But some of those repairs were not in awake patients. But if they're in awake patients, it's much better for a number of reasons. The first is <clears throat> that you can see that your repair easily allows full fist flexion and extension. Because we actually get our patients to test the flexor tendon repair many times during the procedure and make sure that we don't need to vent any more than we have to. So what you do is you put in your first core suture and then you test the movement and you go, oh, I got to vent a little more of my A2. No problem, I'm going to do that. And then you vent a little more of the A2 and now the repair fits beautifully. So you're done venting. You got a great venting thing. And the way to, event, to avoid rupture is first by having a good solid repair, as I have mentioned. And then if you do uh, full intraoperative, full fist flexion and extension testing, then what happens is a very interesting thing. 7% of the time, even in good surgeon's hands, the repair is going to gap. Mm -hmm. And the repair gaps because the surgeon thinks that his repair is good and solid. But with the forces of active flexion, the tendon actually bunches into the suture a little bit, and then you get a gap. And in the old days, that gap would have resulted in rupture. Mm -hmm. But today, when the patient is wide awake, you see this gap, and you repair the gap so that you don't go on to rupture. And so the wide awake repair allows us to do judicious venting of just as much pulley as we need to, up to one and a half to two centimeters to avoid clinically significant bow strain. And it allows us to make sure that there's no gapping, so we're not going to get a rupture. When you said that you notice the gapping in about the 7% of the time, when you have that occurring, what is the technique to prohibit that from occurring? As you saw it occurring in the active patient, you have some evidence of gapping. What's the next step for your procedure at that point? So if we see gapping during the procedure, that means our repair wasn't tight enough. And so what we then do is put in the second core suture and make it tight enough. Now our first suture is loose, right? Okay. So you pull on the loose suture and then you take the loose end and suture that into the long tails of your second core suture. So now you've got a good solid four-strand repair that is tight enough. So that's how you fix it when it happens at surgery. Mm -hmm. So was that original repair only two strands, or was it four initially, and then you just re-tighten that fourth, that last well, set? Most people do two uh, two-strand repairs or two Kessler repairs, if you will. That's the most commonly used uh, repair. Uh, and, and so after the first core suture, you should test your repair and see if it's strong enough. From right off the beginning, is there a reason why you wouldn't have initially have four strands? You could. 
it doesn't really matter. Actually, right now I use a Jinbo Tang M Tang repair, this, which is a six strand repair. Um, and look, there have been far too there's been far too much time spent on what's the best type of suture, what's the best size of suture, where's the best place to put the knot, what's the best kind of EPT non suture. And all of this is because all we used to have was cadaver work and cadaver experiments, but cadavers aren't humans. And mm -hmm. humans uh, re react much differently to sutures. And as soon as surgeons start doing awake repairs, and I, at least 20% of American hand surgeons are now doing wide awake flexor tendon repairs. And as soon as they start, they all tell me the same thing. Holy smoke, I really didn't know that this is what's going on. It's really cool, isn't it? Like we're all learning so many things about this. And it's not the holy grail of how many strands and how many sutures and whether it's fiber wire or not. Okay. There, there have been at least a hundred papers on all this stuff and it really doesn't make any difference. What makes the difference is that you got a darn good solid repair that's not gonna gap with full fist flexion and extension testing and that you vented your pulleys well enough that you're not going to have to come back and do a tenolysis. That's all that matters. Yeah, that's very interesting since, you know, for years and years, it was like, is it a two strand, a four strand, a six strand? And that would change how we would practice as hand therapists significantly. So without that being as much of the concern, because we're now focusing on the fact that the patient actively is able to perform a full fist in the OR with you, how is that changing therapy practices across the world? Well, it's changing therapy a lot in a lot of ways. So the first thing is you don't care how many strands. What you care is did the surgeon take the hand through full fist flexion and extension testing and did they get a gap at surgery? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's nice to know that they've got at least a four strand repair. Okay. Uh, but that's that's really what you want to know if your surgeon is doing wide awake repairs. If your surgeon is not doing wide awake repairs, then you need to know that it's at least a four strand and that it's a really solid repair. And that would be my question for you is don't, don't ask what kind of suture and how many strands. Is your repair really darn solid? That's what you want to know. Is, is it going to come apart or not? So here's the thing. When you do a wide awake flexor tendon repair on Friday morning and you have the patient tested 10 times during the surgery and you see zero gap forming, you know that three days later on Monday after immobilizing and elevating the hand all weekend, so the swelling comes down, the friction comes down, the work of flexion comes down, they get off all painkillers and they come into the therapist painkiller free knowing what hurts. And doing pain-guided therapy, don't do stuff that hurts. And at that point, if they do half a fist of true active movement, you know in your heart it's not going to come apart. Mm -hmm. If I see a full fist flexion extension on Friday morning, I know on Monday morning that they can do half a fist and it's not going to come apart. I don't care how many newtons of force that is. I don't care about all that stuff. All I know is if they can do a half a fist one day, three days later, or full fist one day, three days later, they can do half a fist. And so that's one great reason for moving into true active movement instead of full fist place and hold. Right now, the world is split a little bit. 
okay. uh, between full fist place and hold and true active movement. And I did Kleiner rubber bands for years and I did full fist place and hold for years. And now I'm solidly against it. And I am totally for up to half a fist of true active movement like they do in the UK in Ireland and lots of Europe in Australia and in China and in a growing number of places in the United States and Canada, but we're still kind of the last bastion of full fist place and hold. So yeah, I, I love when you talk about the buckle and jerk that occurs with a place and hold in full fist flexion. I think some of our listeners might not be familiar with exactly what's happening on that. And um, I'll, I'm going to guide them towards some videos on that because it's one of those things you just have to really see it to understand it. And you have some wonderful resources for practitioners out there. But can you give us a little bit of explanation on what's actually happening when you have a buckle and jerk as you describe it in your work? Yeah, so thank you for that. Because the first time I saw buckle and jerk, it was like the first time you see that the earth is round and you go, hey, it's not flat. Uh, and and uh, so what happens is that at wide awake surgery, uh, I simulated full fist place and hold the first time I did it. And, and so what you do is you passively flex the finger. And what I've noticed on many occasions, and we've filmed on many occasions and published this, and thank you for sending them the papers with the videos. They're free. They're open access. Mm -hmm. uh, what happens is, that at about halfway down the fist in passive movement, the tendon actually stops moving and it just buckles. And then when you ask the patient to hold it, the tendon jerks into flexion. And you and I both know that if we take a string and pull on it to try to break it, it doesn't rip apart. But if you jerk it, mm -hmm. it rips apart. And so watching the tendon jerk the first time I did this, I thought, holy crap, this is really bad for flexor tendon repairs. And I'm sure it is. And now when I give talks, I actually show four examples of buckle and jerk. And so if the therapists who are listening to this are still holding on to place and hold, at least please only do half a fist of place and hold, not a full fist, because the second half of the fist is where the greatest risk of rupture is. Jin Botang has shown that. It's where the greatest work of flexion is. It's where the greatest friction is. The second half of the full fist is where the greatest risk of rupture is. And, and we also published a paper this year showing that with half a fist of true active movement, you get five to 15 millimeters of profundus glide. Mm -hmm. It's all you need. You don't need more than half a fist of true active movement to keep the tendon moving so it doesn't get stuck. So there's no benefit for somebody to do a full fist? In my view, absolutely not. There's only risk and uh, it's just not necessary. So you don't need to and there's a greater risk of rupture. So for those two reasons, as they say in the shark's tank, I'm out. I'm not in. <laughs> You know, that makes wonderful sense. And the, when people look at that buckle and jerk, it, it is stunning and uh, profound changes go through your mind on what, what's actually happening because you think, oh, it's just super gentle. Let me put them in a place and hold. And it's not. So it's, it's striking. What, what it is. See. 
It really is. Yeah, so I, I think that's wonderful to, to share with them, and I will definitely lead them to the articles with regards to more details on that and how the 5 to 15 millimeters of the FDP glide is all you need, and you are achieving that with a, a half fist. When do the, so when do they move into a true full fist? What, what's your general guideline for the progression from the ability to do a half fist day two or three after surgery into progressing into a, a gentle full fist? It's over three or four weeks, and it's all about pain-guided movement and pain-guided healing. If it doesn't hurt, they can do it. But right. as therapists, I think it's really important to gently coax your patient off all painkillers uh, and let them keep their hand elevated uh, rather than take Advil when they put their hand down and it's sore. It's, uh, I, I, think, I think that's very important. Gwen Van Strien is an awesome therapist from the Netherlands. And what she has her patients do sometimes, and we do it sometimes, is they put their uninjured hand into the palm of their injured hand and have their fingers out straight and have their injured fingers, the four fingers, scratch the index finger the first week scratch the long finger the second week so there's more flexion there scratch the ring finger the third week so you're almost getting down to the full fist and then scratch all four fingers including the fifth finger on the fourth week it's perhaps a simple way of a guide but you know every patient is different we're not mcdonald's hamburgers <laughs> right. and 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 some people need to wait even a little longer than three to five days to start so that they can get their swelling down, especially if they weren't done awake. When my patients are done awake, I tell them all, this hand is on strike until you see our therapist on Monday. I only wanted to do one thing, stay higher than your heart or up on the kitchen table with your elbow on the table like your grandmother told you not to. <laughs> um, because if, if you walk around with your hand dangling down and you come back here on Monday, your hand's going to be like a report card. I'm going to know you've been walking around it down because it's going to be swollen like a football and we're going to have to delay the therapy because you can't really push really swollen digits which brings me to a very important point there's this current belief that you got to take coban off to do exercises now, i totally don't believe that at all we've never done that we've used coban the whole time Mm -hmm. And I, I, I said, finally, could you show me the evidence for that, please? And I, the evidence is a single paper in one cadaver hand where they injected saline into fingers and then tried to put Coban on. And sometimes the saline would squish out. So they put in more saline. <laughs> and they, show, they showed in this one cadaver that it was more work to do the flexor tendon movement with Coban on. Okay. I mean, talk about an artificial, not real situation. And only in one hand did they do this. You know what? Um, it, the, the evidence just isn't there. Show me the money, as they say in the movie. Like, uh, I, I don't see the money. I don't see the evidence. And we're going to continue to use Coban until somebody does a proper prospective randomized trial to show me that I've got more ruptures because I'm using Coban than I'm not. Look, I know how strong my repair is. And I know that putting a little Coban on is not going to rupture my repair with half a fist of true active movement. Mm -hmm. And for patients to take Coban off 
and put it back on 10 times a day. Really? <laughs> Who has time to do that? Like, I don't know what kind of a planet people live on, but I want them to exercise more often. I don't want them to go, oh, I didn't have time to do that Kobach crap. So I only exercised three times yesterday. Yeah. Do you have them in the Coban right from the OR or what's your post-op dressing contain? Yeah, that's another thing that's changed. You know, I used to uh, have a total love affair for my IPs totally straight and my MPs at 90 degrees and my wrist that, you know, like not originally my wrist was <laughs> flexed. That was terrible 30 years ago. Now I just put them in a comfortable bandage, just soft, just comfortable and keep your hand up that's okay. the, it's up is way more important than how you immobilize the joints you got to remember collagen formation doesn't start until day three okay right. so people aren't going to make scar collagen until day three so it doesn't really matter what position you put them in in the first three days as long as they're comfortable and if they're comfortable they get off their bloody painkillers so when they come in they know what hurts and what doesn't hurt. That's a critical part. What orthosis are you in your practice um, utilizing with your hand therapy group? Well, we've published it in the St. John Protocol, if, if people look it up. Uh, but frankly, the, the more time goes on, the more I just want them in a comfortable orthosis with the wrist in comfortable extension, the MP joints in comfortable flexion, I do like the IP joints extended, especially, okay. for, especially for them to sleep at night. I think IP extension is important. And in fact, one of the more important things for them to focus on in those critical first three weeks is active IP joint extension, mm -hmm. you know, making, making the duck, the shadow duck thing with your hands. Uh, you know, I, I think that that is critical. And we're more and more moving to a Manchester short splint that allows wrist motion. Right. Uh, and uh, Jen Botang, if you read that 2017 paper, which I think is just as important as the 1968 Harold Kleinert paper, where he talked about true active or true uh, uh, rubber band movement for zone two, that 2017 paper, he takes his patients right out of splint for exercise. And frankly, I don't think, I don't see anything wrong with that as long as the patients don't use the hands and do things. And I, I just want to underline that that is another major advantage. In fact, one of the most important advantages of wide awake flexor tendon repair is intraoperative patient education. And, you know, when people are not sedated, you can tell them all of the things that you want them to do to avoid complications. And every patient that I do has to tell me three times during the repair before they leave. The most important rule when my therapist starts to move me on Monday is, and the answer I is, I can move it, but I can't use it. <laughs> I, I love that, you know, then I'm sure the therapist continues having them voice that over and over because it becomes solidified in their brain. I can move it, but I can't use it. Right, right. And, and I say that because I've had patients rupture their tendons because they have excessively used it over the years. And, well, also, you know, if, you, if you're getting them in a position where they're not uncomfortable, then mind is automatically, it doesn't hurt, I'm going to go ahead and use it. So it makes sense why they might overutilize it from day right. one. 
Right. And I think, frankly, that that is one that and keeping IP joint extension at night, the, the Hollywood effect or the visual effect of, oh, gee, I got a split. I can't pack that cord of wood into my garage. Um, you know, it, it just reminds people that their hand is not normal and that they can't do all the things that they normally do. Do I have a problem with my patients taking the split off and doing uh, exercises like Dr. Botang has some of his patients do? No, as long as they put the splint back on and don't pack the cord of wood. Right. But, but, but they know because I really grill them during the surgery, you know, and, and one of the things that you can do with patients during the surgery, and we have our therapists come in because they're just down the hall. So, you know, they come in and do some intraoperative education in between their patients on the patient that I'm fixing the flexor tendon on because we do them outside the main operating room okay. in a procedure room. That's uh, done that way in many cities in Canada. And it will someday be done that way all through the United States. I'm convinced of that. And so when the, when the surgeon calls the therapist in, then uh, one of the, my favorite questions during the surgery is, so Frank, what were you planning to do this week? And he kind of goes, what was I planning to do? And he goes, well, you know, I was, I'm going to play golf with my buddies on Wednesday. Uh, I don't think so, Frank. You know, <laughs> you're, you're, you're not going to be able to play golf probably for another six weeks at least, I would guess. And here's why. Or, well, you know, I'm going to go home and look after my mom. You know, I put her in the bath every day. She's got dementia. Well, you know, Susan, I'm not sure you're going to be able to do that because you really can't get your splint wet. And if your mom slips and falls and you need to grab her, you're going to rip your tendon repair apart. And you and I might have to try to do this again. And I got to tell you, this is your best shot. If this doesn't work today, it's probably not going to happen. So you really can't screw it up. You know what? I think you're really going to have to get somebody else to look after your mom this week. You know, a flexor tendon repair changes people's lives in a big way. And it's really time that surgeons during the surgery, instead of talking to the nurses about the weather, discuss with their patient about how this is going to change your life for the next three weeks if you want a good result. I mean, if you don't want a good result, that's fine, but everybody wants a good result. So when you said 20% are utilizing the wide awake, that's, that's a pretty strong number, but how are we going to see more? How are therapists going to engage their surgeons in order to help change the mindset? And is there resistance from anesthesiologists because they're not as much integrated into that role with a wide awake procedure? What, what's going to change with all of those aspects? Well, that's a long and difficult question <laughs> because it has many aspects to it. But uh, I'm at the Kleinert Institute in Louisville right now. And yesterday I was talking to Dennis, who's their head anesthesia person. And he's totally interested in Wallant and he's actually doing it for some of their patients now. Okay. And anesthesiologists are starting to do this in England and France and Australia. And uh, really, it's another great tool for them. So eventually, I think anesthesiologists will learn to use tumescent local anesthesia as another alternative, another arrow in their quiver, if you will. Uh, and I think that um, the whole money part is complicated. But, you know, if it's about the patient, 
this is a no-brainer. If it's about the money, well, I'm sorry. But if it's about the patient, we got to do what's best for them. And so ultimately, that will win. And I think that more and more surgeons who go to more and more meetings are hearing more and more other surgeons going, holy crap, I'm really getting good results with my flexor tendons now, and they really used to suck. I do need to add one more thing to flexor tendon repair that has really changed our results and really made things a lot better. And that's the advent of relative motion splinting and ultrasound. Mm -hmm. So one of the really common problems after flexor tendon repair is extensor leg of the PIP joint, right? Yes. You see it all the time. So now what we do is put those patients in relative motion flexion splints, and that drives the extension to the PIP joint. And so they exercise while they're living instead of living to stopping living to exercise because 500 times a day they open and close their fists so 500 times a day they're driving extension to the pip joint with a relative motion flexion orthosis we're going to wrap up this podcast on flexor tendons before we dive too far into the relative motion orthosis Lacerta syndrome and more which we will discuss with dr lalonde in the next episode titled Relative Motion Gems, Pearls and Diamonds. But if you send us an email to info at handtherapy.com, we will send you the summary sheet with links to the video clips and articles discussed in both podcast presentations. So with that said, we shall say goodbye for now. Bye. Thank you for listening to Hand Therapy Heroes. Please subscribe and leave a five-star review. Visit handtherapy.com and register for our newsletter containing free content and courses about our fascinating hands. Hold hands today for a more functional tomorrow.